Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. We've got an amazing guest with us today. Keith Ferrazzi is the New York Times bestselling author of Never Eat Alone, Who's Got Your Back, and Leading Without Authority. Keith will talk about adapting to the new world of work, the concept of leading without authority, and how to effectively collaborate with your team members that contribute to your success. So without further ado, let's welcome Keith Ferrazzi. Hey guys, it's Chris Shepard with your Westside Investors Network podcast. Just wanted you all to be aware there is a little bit of foul language in this podcast. So there's your disclaimer. Enjoy the show. All right. Today, we've got Keith Ferrazzi with us. He is founder and chairman of Ferrazzi Greenlight and number one New York Times bestselling author of Who's Got Your Back, Never Eat Alone, and Leading Without Authority. Keith, just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. Is there anything that we missed in our introduction? No, no, not at all. I'm looking forward to diving into the conversation with you two. It's really exciting to have you on today. I loved your book, Never Eat Alone, and just sharing some of the experiences on developing relationships. Uh, I mean, honestly, I want to throw some of those dinner parties that you talked about. Well, I wrote the book a long time ago. I'm hoping you've probably thrown a few in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> I actually just discovered your books in the past month. And oh, fantastic. I mean, they are still very, very relevant today. And it's pretty incredible some of your teachings and just your philosophy. So, I have to say that book has been a blessing. I mean, I go to, I'm at the gym in Vietnam and a young lady comes up to me with a tattered copy of her book, who's the gym manager there, talking about how that book helped her move out of the village she was in, in a rural village in Vietnam. So no, the basic principle of Never Eat Alone was that you know, other individuals and our network is gonna define our success but instead of thinking of it as this transactional, usury thing, how do we lean in and develop authentic, generous, caring relationships around us that lift each other up? And you know that principle carried through all of my work. In my last book, Leading Without Authority, really talked about how do you bring that into leadership? And then, then over this past year, because of the network that I had accumulated, we had 2,000 executives over the pandemic in a massive research project, really looking at the question, how do we crawl out of this rubble and go forward, not back to work? And how do we reinvent leadership and our business models? And yeah, all of this emanated from that, that one book a number of years ago. That's great. With dealing with those 2000 executives kind of like over Zoom, has there been kind of any changes that you've seen kind of in how those relationships are yeah. maybe defined and developed? Yeah, there's a chapter in the new book, Competing in the New World of Work, around collaboration and inclusion. And what is the biggest lesson that I think we didn't learn during the pandemic that is a big miss is that we took old ways of working, old ways of meeting, and we just moved them over into this new technology. And we never reinvented our assumptions about work 
and our assumptions about meeting in the new world of work. We just ported old ways of working into a new tool. And that was a real miss. So I'll give you probably one of the biggest, for instances, you know, we're all complaining of being one after another, you know, they call it Zoom gloom, I guess, just one meeting after another. And what's the reality is that the companies that really thrived in this world, they don't assume that all collaboration starts with a meeting. In the olden days, we believed the collaboration starts with a meeting. Let's pull people together, you know, in a conference room. But the reality is the best form of meeting, the best form of collaborating happens when we use what's called asynchronous collaboration, collaborating in the cloud, using Google Docs, using Slack, using, you know, and it's interesting. We studied teams that were meeting. If you take an average group of 12 individuals meeting in a room, only four of them actually feel that they're fully hurt. And the ability to have started that collaboration in the cloud, and to be honest, when you know, looking at a particular problem, if you were about to throw a meeting and you're going to put 12 people into a room, the reality is that only three to six of them are going to have a point of view. And we could have recognized that and saved everybody the time. And the reality is when you use asynchronous collaboration, you can get 30 people involved in the discussion to find the six that really matter. And then if there's a crunchy issue, pull them together physically to really wrestle something out. Now, that's how you use what we call in the book, the collaborative stack. You know, asynchronous, remote, hybrid, in-person, all of those are really uniquely and important ways to work and collaborate. But we just think, oh, well, there's remote and there's physical. No, every one of those have their own ways of being used how to work. And if you do that effectively, you can keep a more engaged workforce. You can have greater energy. You can have more innovation. You can have more vivacious conversations. And to me, that's the big miss. The big miss is that we didn't reinvent the way we work. We just slapped on new tools to work in the old ways. And that's what this book was all about fixing. That is such a like a smart insight, you know, just trying to use our old meetings. And one of the things our company kind of struggles with a little bit is just encouraging collaboration in general. Sometimes it's tough for us to get our teams to collaborate with other teams to bring the entire enterprise forward. And so I'd be interested to hear, you know, what do you think really just drives collaboration in general when it comes to companies and how yeah. to maximize working together? Yeah, again, so you're really hitting beautifully on one of the other myths that we uncovered. And one of the greatest myths to work today is anybody who believes any leader particularly who believes that their team is who reports to them. Bullshit. That has nothing to do with work. You know, Adam Grant, my old alma mater, Deloitte, they've been studying for years and everybody now recognizes that we work in networks. That's assumed. We work in networks. A long time ago, we used to work in silos and it worked fine because work was much more simplistic. It was more conveyor belt. Marketing did its thing, handoff to sales, sales did its thing. But today, the interdependencies are what matters. Real wisdom, real insights, real breakthroughs is when the sales organization starts to see something, collaborates with the marketing function, reinvents a marketing asset, works with a product team, reinvents product functionality. You know, it's like all of this is interdependent and for us to be effective. And we think that by reorganizing our damn companies, that that's the solution. 
All we're doing is we're moving the org chart around to fix a disruption that happens at the edge of the org chart. And then in six months, we have another disruption happening at the edge of the new org chart. The reality is that the mindset has to be your team is those you need to get your job done. Now, we have multiple teams in any day. You have multiple goals. Chris, in your role, you have a few critical roles that you're playing for the company. Every one of those critical roles has a different team. And if you recognize you're leading three teams, three teams around each goal, and then that team has a social contract with each other, which is we're going to speak truth to each other. We're going to challenge each other. We're going to wrestle ideas. So now all of a sudden, you're no longer baking an idea in your silo, in your swim lane, in your function, and then going into getting buy-in from other people. Buy-in is bullshit. Those people you're trying to get buy-in from are the individuals that are actually should be co-creating the solution with you. So you got to reboot the mindset of the people in your team that they're actually leading multiple teams and they cut across networks. And also, to be honest with you, if you want to take it one step further, is that you don't even need authority to lead. A leader is anybody who has a bold idea and the ability to marshal a team to fix it. And that's what we saw repeatedly and what we documented in the new book, Competing in the New World of Work, was that we wanted to make sure that individuals who, during the pandemic, if somebody had a powerful idea that was going to solve a problem, nobody worried where it came from. We were bold and we had cut down silos. I was talking to some of the biggest companies in the world, like AT&T and others, that you would think would be mired in bureaucracy and org charts, et cetera, but they blew it all away. Whoever had the solution where the problem was at the coalface had the authority to fix it. And we need to keep that alive in our organizations. We need to keep that alive. So part of it, Chris, is making sure that your organization feels encouraged, celebrate people to be leaders of teams that they don't even know they have yet. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is how do you encourage that type of leadership without authority amongst team members? Well, you have two options. You have two options. One is you can hire me as a speaker, which is very expensive, (laughs) or, or you can buy the damn book, which is only 30 bucks, right? So the idea is you need to awaken people. And that's where a conversation on this topic is good to have. One of the things we encourage teams to do is to actually reflect on what I'm just talking about. Why don't you call a meeting with your teams and say, listen, when we were at the peak of the pandemic, what are some of the things we're proud of that we did that we want to hold on to and not let go of? Now, if you actually read the book, they might be prompted on that, but they will tell you that you know, we weren't as turf-oriented as we used to be. They will tell you that we were more agile and adaptable than we ever have been, right? We will all say that. And then once they diagnose what they saw, right, this is their, one of the great things that I find as a coach and I coach teams is that when a team discovers something for themselves, it's much more likely to land. It's true of any of us as individuals, if we do our own discovery. So sometimes just holding space for a team to ask these questions, like, you know, what is it that we want to change in our form of leadership and not go back to old ways of working? And you'll be surprised what your team will come up with themselves. Now, like I said, that's what we did. We had 2,000 executives, 300 companies in this study, and nobody was doing it all well, but everybody was doing something exceptional. And so we were, you know, whether it was a small practice on how a team became more resilient, a small practice on how a team was more candid, a small practice on how a team rethought its business model, right? All of those things we brought together in this aggregated 
single best practice study that I'm so proud that Harvard picked as its top book coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, that's really I, exciting. I like that. Ahead, AJ. I like that, you know, giving time or patience to for that team to really kind of come up with and reflect on like, well, what was good? You know, I've definitely letting it sit with them and something that they come up with is, like you said, just much more likely to stick. And AJ, I'll give you one other tool to use, Chris. When I wrote the book, you know, I know that this is a multi-generational world we live in today. Not everybody reads the way they used to. Even I don't get a chance to read as much as I'd like to read. So I created a video series around the book. My partner and I did wrote the book with me and that's free. I just want a multimedia approach. So when people buy the book now, particularly, I don't know when we're going to air our conversation, but the book actually comes out, you know, in a week awesome. when people buy the book. Yeah. I mean, maybe be already out by the time people see this, but when people buy the book in February, they get the free video course. Okay. And they go to yeah, radicallyadapt.com, radicallyadapt.com. If you could put that in the show notes, that'd be super. Yeah, we will. That's where people find the free video. And every chapter, we have a video around it so that it allows you to work through these chapters with your teams, because that's the idea. So, you know, how do we be more inclusive? Watch the 10-minute video and let's have a conversation about it. How do we be more agile? Watch the video. How do we have more foresight looking around corners? How do we think about reinventing our business model? It's not too late. How do we think about purpose and leaning on purpose during these struggling times? So every chapter has an eight to 10 minute video, which you can throw to your team and then have a conversation about it. Yeah, I really like that like hands-on approach too. And that way it gives some talking points and really go through. I find like a lot of books that are kind of have that kind of interactive piece really makes it stick. I think it's the new age. Yeah, it's the new age. I mean, I've always been a very practical writer. Chris, you mentioned my book, Never Read Alone. People loved my book because it was like eating popcorn. All these little practices, you know, how do you throw a dinner party and all the yeah. specific, you know, focuses around it, et cetera. I've always tried to carry that through my work and make sure that everybody had very, and that's what I actually do. Our research institute researches what we call high return practices. You know, I'll give you this idea of using a breakout room. So, you know, like a lot of us have report outs in our meetings. You have a meeting and you do a report out of somebody's work. And then usually there'd be a little chatter between the leader and the person who did the report out. Maybe one person chimes in, you go on to the next person. That is the biggest waste of valuable people's time in real estate I can imagine. So what we do is we have a thing called bulletproofing at the end of it, where somebody gives a report out, snap your fingers, everybody goes to breakout rooms, a Google Doc is opened or a SharePoint document is opened. Everybody writes, what risk is this person not seeing? What innovation is this person missing? Is there any offer of support or help? Write that shit down in the breakout room of two people, right? Come back, hand that stuff off to the person who just gave the report out. Now they've got double barrel feedback from everybody. That's the kind of stuff that Ray Dalio talked about in his book, Principles, but we haven't engineered companies to do. Now you've turned what we hope our culture to be, which nobody's culture is, we now turn it into an assignment using the tool and the breakout room as the effective mechanism, right? Now that starts rebooting the way we work. And that's what we need to start doing, not just using old workways in new work tools. Well, and that sounds like it really doesn't allow that kind of like fly on the wall person. Like everyone's got to kind of contribute. You get those breakout rooms small enough and right. everyone's given their perspective and feedback and maybe even a little criticism. So, <laughs> yep, exactly. Listen, little criticism is critical, as you know. Yeah. I mean, 
that's so critical that we hear from our teams what they're thinking. And we just don't, unfortunately. So I kind of want to touch back a little bit, but like on the use of authority and kind of like that team leader, like, I guess from what you've seen with teams, like what characteristics do you see in a person that they kind of step up to be that team leader? Or what can we do as leaders to really kind of promote those people to step up and take charge? So one of the things that was interesting, I was in a team coaching a team during the pandemic and the leader was upset with the team because their score, we do a diagnostic test on the team. One of the questions was, can we speak up and challenge each other in the room when it's risky to do so? And this team was like at a two on a scale of zero to five. Wow. And the leader was like, and by the way, the average team is 2.4. So this is a problem, a big problem we have it. We see in teams all the time. And the leader is bitching at the team. I told you guys, I want to hear from you. I want you to speak up. This is what's going on here. And I said to the, no, let me, I'm, I'm going to call him Jay. I'm like, Jay, you don't understand, dude. Stop yelling at your team. That's your number. If that number doesn't go to four, it's your fault. You're not creating a psychologically safe environment. So I just asked him, in fr- and I said this in front of the room. I said, what would you do differently to get a four? Right? And he said, well, you're right. I maybe ask more questions. Maybe I would use breakout rooms more. You know, he started realizing as a leader what he would do. And I would just ask that question of any of you, if you want your team to lead without authority, if you want your team to be more innovative and take relief from you off of your shoulders for leadership of some of that and allow you to be able to do more strategic you know, planning, et cetera, what would you do? And the answer would be, you'd celebrate those who are doing it. You wouldn't call meetings where you'd be in the weeds of everything. You'd let people fail forward. You'd let people learn on the job. I mean, all of those things you would do as a leader that would allow an, a rich environment of leading without authority. You'd probably identify somebody in your team that's doing it well and is naturally ordained to do it that way and celebrate those activities, right? Celebration is one of the greatest reinforcers of a certain type of behavior. So Keith, what are some of the characteristics that you see in kind of uncovered talent of like of these unspoken leaders who are leading without authority? Certainly, you know, this is something that we looked at in the book, which is what is the hiring profile look like for the employee of the future, right? And the leader of the future. And I do believe that, you know, we have allowed people to survive and even thrive in organizations who have very little entrepreneurial capability. And we have celebrated individuals for saluting the flag and doing the job, right? And I feel that, and also there's been a lot of complaints during, at the early stage of the pandemic, and prior to around this millennial population that's demanding so much, et cetera, we keep hearing about. The reality is that I do believe that in the future, a more resilient individual is going to emerge. You know, individuals who, I mean, the gig worker is going to thrive. The individual who can show up and plug into a team and thrive, whether they have worked for that company for a long period of time or not. And leaders are going to have to recognize that relationships, which used to be created over a long period of time of working together, trust, now has to be something that we accelerate as a purposeful, fast action. So you get a group of individuals together to do a project. I'm here in Los Angeles today, and the entertainment business knows how to do this. 
people come together for a movie they've never worked together before, right? And there's an accelerated trust building and bonding process that occurs. And some directors and producers do it very purposefully where they sink in and get to know each other and they have shared storytelling and those kind of things. We're going to have to do the same thing where it's not just about outside workers like gig workers who come in, but actually people who are inside of companies who are working in one part of the organization coming over to work with you. You've got to learn how to accelerate the trust. And trust is built by a combination of proven delivery capability, but also relationship capability. And we've got to leave time. One of the things I do with meetings is when teams are forming, I have them do something called a personal professional check-in where everybody goes around and they get a good five minutes and maybe it's its own meeting, you know, just curated for this. They get their own time to share what's going on in your life personally and professionally. Where are you struggling? And people share about their kids and they share about their aging parents and they share about a loved one or a spouse with a health issue. And empathy gets created. And when empathy is created, then you have a more forgiving, caring relationship that you can lean on. And it's easier to be candid. And it's easier to speak truth when you know that respect and care is there. So Keith, like all I've known of like, you know, kind of the old business is that it is business. You leave your personal life at home and then you come in and get the job done. And, you know, the idea of a personal professional check-in, like that doesn't fit the archetype of, uh, yeah. you know, the old business well, that... I agree. Business is business and personal is personal, right? You keep them separate. That was an old myth. And that's one of the things that we uncovered, which is what are these myths? And one of the myths, you know, is that you leave your personal life at home. Well, <laughs> bullshit. I mean... Today, your work life has joined your home, right? I mean, that's, so how do you leave your personal life at home when your work life has joined your home? So this is a lot of what we have to think about today, which is we've got to reboot these assumptions. You know, our kids walk across, you know, I just realized normally my door frame is outside of the frame, but I have no idea who's going to walk out of that bedroom over there and wearing what, right? We've all been in those (laughs) situations, you know, on Zoom and, All of a sudden, you know, your kid without clothes just walks across the thing. It's particularly embarrassing when he's 18. But anyway, um, (laughs) so, you know, we've all got to start realizing realizing that we're living in a very different world today and we've all got to start adapting. And that's what I tried to do. I was like, you know, there are going to be organizations. They're going to get through this pandemic and go, you know, I'm so happy. Let's go back to work. And that was the biggest sadness for me. And I just wanted to make sure that every one of your listeners had a chance to learn from each other and truly use this time as a reinvention. And it's not just a reinvention for the company. It's a reinvention for each of us. What's important to each of us, how we want to live our lives. I've made some shifts in my own assumptions of what was important to me and how I wanted to live my life. What is enough? You know, travel, right? I mean, I used to be on a plane, giving speaking engagements, coaching teams all the time. I like it here. You know, I fell in love during the pandemic. Thank God for swipe right, swipe left. You know, I actually, you know, utilize dating apps and I'm in a wonderful, wonderful new relationship. I don't want to go back to the old ways of working. I feel even panicked at times that I'm not 
effectively leveraging. And I've been studying how to leverage this time to reboot our lives and our leadership and our organizations. And I still worry that I'm going to not fully take advantage of that, even myself. I mean, I think a lot of people have the same sentiments. There's a lot of people that have grown accustomed to working from home and like it. And I firmly believe with you that there's going to be those companies that are like, you need to be back to work. But I really believe that some sort of like hybrid model going forward is going to be kind of more popular. Do you have any ideas on, you know, the yeah. kind of, kind of I mean, the new habits that companies through the pandemic have? I mean, look, I, I could get in trouble here. Some of my clients <laughs> do not believe in what I believe. Here's what I found, I'll tell you, which is I don't care in many regards. I don't care what you're choosing relative to how much time you mandate your people are in the office. That's a personal choice. And it's interesting. Many of these personal choices are not driven by anything other than the natural preclivity of your executive. You know, I mean, it's like what the CEO feels is right. And, you know, I've seen organizations where the CHRO feels very differently than the CEO, but they're going to go back to a full in-person group. But what I do know is that whether you're fully in-person or whether you want to be mostly fully remote or whether you're a hybrid, which I think is going to be the natural course, you need to think about the way you work differently. As I said, number one, teams have nothing to do with org charts. You're now working in networks. Number two, you start your collaboration of that network, that loose network, broad and bold using asynchronous collaboration. Then you move into remote meetings. Even if you are physically in the offices, I don't care. You still have people from different offices coming together. You're still, quote, remote in that regard. And now you use those remote meetings for opening the aperture for idea creation and innovation and bolder thinking. And then you could go to physical meetings when once you've narrowed the aperture, right? But take advantage of being more inclusive, right? Take advantage of being more inclusive. You know, I do believe that, you know, we're going to be in a situation where even companies that have a proclivity for physical aren't going to be doing more than a couple of days physical eventually. Interesting. Keith, I got a question. So for, I guess, newer leaders and like, there's has to be some of the skills, you know, prior to the pandemic that are going to still be useful or necessary to lead. And, you know, for someone who's a little newer to leading teams, what do you think the keys are to being successful and to developing collaboration and teamwork and synergy? Yeah, I mean, I go back to, you know, for 20 years, my organization has been coaching teams. That's what we do. Like, we don't coach individual executive, we coach teams. And, you know, I'll give you a series of attributes that have always been important. Outcomes. You know, are you outcomes focused? Are you focusing on incremental change or are you focusing on transformation? That is clearly always going to be at the pinnacle of your success. Accountability. Are your team, not only are your team members accountable, and this is the shift, are your team members accountable to each other? The big awakening, if you're a new leader, and this is something I have to undo with old leaders, leadership is not about you leading individuals. Leadership is about you getting a team of individuals to effectively work as the best co-elevating team possible. And I created that word co-elevating because a team's got to come together in service of each other. A team's got to stress test, push, you know, innovate, encourage each other. A team 
and it's interesting, I say to HR leaders, I said, we've been focusing on leadership competencies for a very long time, but what about team competencies? What's it mean to be a part of the team? What's it mean to be a leader making a part of the team? So there's, there's social contracts in teams that exist today that are wrong. Like one social contract is I don't speak up against a team member openly. That would be throwing them under the bus. Right. Does that make sense? You've heard, you know, I I'm, I'm guarantee most teams feel that. Yeah. Now there's another social contract, which is I am so committed to the mission and so committed to my teammates. And I so respect my teammates that I'm going to speak truth in the room and help my teammate not fail that my teammate deserves my point of view. Now they can do what they want to with it, but they deserve my point of view. I'm going to speak it because I can't afford them to fail. Now that's a shift. That latter belief, that latter social contract is a contract of a co-elevating team. That first contract is the contract of a siloed team. So Chris, you know, and, and AJ, you mentioned you're struggling in your organizations, getting teams to work across silos. You've got to get people to reboot their social contract, right? And that's what we do. I mean, that's what I do as a coach of teams, but that's what we wrote in the book. What we found is that organizations and teams that rebooted their social contract with each other right, are the ones that thrived in this new work world. So we're trying to bring that in book form to teams and leaders leading with, you know, this kind of inclusion that really is radically adaptable is the answer in this new world. Well, Keith, I am super excited to grab your new book. It's the How to Compete in the New World of Work, right? Coming out in February. Yeah, the book is called Competing in the New World of Work. You go to radically adapt.com. And where you're there, you can insert, you can tell us that you bought the book on Amazon. And then we send you the video series. Awesome. Or anywhere else you buy the book. I mean, we've got our last four questions here and I'm going to get it started off with the first one. What's one piece of advice you would give to your 25 year old self? That your team is going to define your future success. Invest more in them than in your career. So that's a lesson I learned late. Okay. And Keith, what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? Oh, wow. My earliest memory is probably being, you know, single digits with a very large paper route. It was one of those papers that would just drop off a bundle of them at the nearest five and dime store. And I reached out to the paper and said, I'd like to deliver it to everyone's doorstep. And I got a, I think I got a penny of a paper or something for that. Yeah. That was my first. Wow. Yes. Very entrepreneurial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Formerly, I went to Yale University and Harvard Business School. And at Yale, I can't say that any of my courses shaped my journey, but my extracurriculars did. Right. And, you know, they have those things at Yale called secret societies, senior societies, and they're not as spooky or weird as they sound. You know, you get together on Wednesday nights with a group of your peers and you share deeply and richly how you grew up. And it's one of those experiences where you get fully vulnerable with a group of people. And that's what creates the bonding experience. But what I realized back then was that the stuff that I was ashamed of becoming I grew up really poor in Southwestern Pennsylvania. And, you know, I was ashamed of that when I went to Yale, but giving me the opportunity to shake shame off and share vulnerably was game changing for me. 
So I look at some of those experiential opportunities in more social situations. And same little thing with Harvard Business School. Their teaching method is case study. And their way of learning is listening to your peers banter. And when you share about the case, you've got to have built from the person who shared right before you. So it's not about you answering the question. It's about you building a story from each other. Again, that whole principle of interdependency. I think those are the things that had most influenced me. That's great. Yeah. Okay. And our final question, what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? It's not quite the same as the first question, but if I look back, my biggest mistake was not having found partners earlier, whether that's in life. I was actually married twice and I can't say that either of those relationships was a true partnership in this world, not the way I understand it today, this principle of co-elevation. And I look at my business and I was much more entrepreneurial individually and I had a very strong team leveraging effectively me as the CEO, but I didn't find partners. I think partnership in life is the greatest gifts and learning partnership allows you to build exponentially. And I think I look back and there were some individuals that I could have partnered with along the way that because of my mindset, I let slip. And I think those were my biggest mistakes. Now it's time to rectify it. I'm 55, <laughs> still learning. Always learning. Yeah. Can I ask, so finding partners in real estate and our audience, finding partners is probably one of the best possible things you can do, but it's also one of the most difficult and scary situations. Yeah. What do you think about, you know, growing with a partner and just avoiding the pitfalls of maybe getting well i'll tell you this here's what stops great partnerships it's when each of us are batshit crazy so (laughs) it's like you know by the way i met a lot of people in real estate there's a lot of batshit crazy people in your industry and the reality is that i didn't find partnerships because i wasn't the best person i needed to be and you know if i go back to that 25 year old self i wasn't ready i was an insecure kid that was still trying to prove something to outgrow my shame and my insecurity. And I had something to prove and all of that made me unpartnerable. So it's not like, you know, it's like the people that I chose to be with were at a level that I could accept. And I wasn't ready to invite extraordinary into my life as a true partner. And that has to do with your own personal journey. It's not about choosing the other individuals. So if you have consistently been disappointed by partners, there's one thing that's true to all of those partnerships. And that's you. It's you. <laughs> right? And so, you know, what does that for me? I wish I could have done it earlier because I really have matured and grown later in life. I'm not proud of, it's not that I'm not proud of. I shouldn't say that. I don't want to beat myself up. But, you know, with deep exploration of spirituality, meditation, therapy, coaching, everything that I could bring into my life that would take me higher. I always say anything that'll ground me more or take me higher, I'm game. You know, Deepak Chopra, I got to be a friend of Deepak early on. Tony Robbins, I speak at his conferences because I've been followers of these individuals with wisdom, insight seminars. I mean, there's all of these things that fundamentally pick at us as individuals to expose us to grow, right? These days, I mean, there's a big, you know, focus on psychedelic medicine and it's legal 
now in you might have partied with mushrooms when you were in college (laughs) but you know these things rewire the brain and me going to costa rica and doing and sitting and doing an ayahuasca ceremony and drinking this stuff and going into a psychedelic trance of of re-engineering some of the insecurities and reliving some of the trauma of my youth this is i mean i'll do anything and i've done it and it's allowed me to grow to the point where i could find the love of my life which i've done it's allowed me to grow where i can entertain a partner where I've never been able to do that before. So I think the answer to your question is, you know, you look inside and that's where you find your capacity to be a partner. And you will smell the right person when you're ready. The problem is I picked the right person for me and I wasn't ready, right? I feel badly for, you know, we, we find individuals to feed our codependence or insecurity. And then we end up disappointing ourselves and we end up reinforcing our old bad belief systems and like, see, that's the way people are. Well, bullshit, you know, we need to grow and elevate and find that partnership. Wow. Well, what amazing words of wisdom, Keith, this has been awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much much for coming on. I'm super excited for your new book and really appreciate all that you've done. I've got a lot of reading to do. Yeah, good. (laughs) Good, good, good. All right, see you guys. Have a lovely day. Thank you. Take care. Awesome. Thanks so much, Keith. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.